From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show about ideas, about public intellectuals, and about the politics of academia. School is back in session, and universities across the world are trying desperately to stay open as the COVID-19 pandemic rages. In Ontario, where I live, most schools have some form of vaccine mandate, but enforcement might be a little patchy. In the U.S., more than a thousand colleges and universities have some form of the mandate, but many red state schools don't. And according to the CDC, less than 50% of college-age individuals are fully vaccinated. In some places, many students are even showing up maskless. They're doing it in protest. So it's all kind of a mess. But I think universities are going to figure their way out of this. And you have to have a little bit of perspective. Remember what it was like 18 months ago? It was a lot worse than this. Back then, there were all these think pieces about the death of the university. It was clearly doom and gloom. The Wall Street Journal in April said that colleges are at a financial breaking point. Science said that universities would never be the same. And the New Republic called this the end of the university as we know it. These publications and others pointed out this massive financial crisis and prognosticated a shift towards online education. I'm not exactly sure this has happened. Sure, there was a push towards online learning, but it seemed like there was an equally strong push back. Students just didn't like their Zoom classes. I know this from personal experience. I taught a class last year. It worked okay, but it wasn't easy and Zoom just kind of sucked. But what about the finances? What about that so-called financial breaking point? Well, it is true that the higher education sector suffered. They took an enormous hit. Here in Canada, StatsCan estimates that universities might have lost $2.5 billion last year. The damage was real. With one Canadian university, it was so tough they went insolvent, Laurentian University. They ultimately had to restructure, laying off 100 professors and dozens of programs. If you're into philosophy, political science, physics, music, mathematics, geography, labor studies, well, tough luck. You can't study those things at Laurentian anymore, and a lot of other programs are cut. It is just awful. But that's just one school. It's clear that the university struggled, but this wasn't the end of the university as we know it. So today, we take a realistic look at higher education. What really happened? What didn't? And what's the future of higher ed? I speak to Gary Rhodes. He co-authored with Sheila Slaughter the very influential book, Academic Capitalism and the New Economy, Markets, State, and Higher Education. Academic capitalism is this concept that they write about. It's like a kind of ideological, institutional, and governmental shift within the academy. It's the shift to a neoliberal academy. It's kind of an old story now, but Gary and Sheila really popularized it. 
The neoliberal academy, it's a school that doesn't so much focus on teaching or civic engagement or even basic research. Instead, more and more, it's focused on marketization. It's focused on IP. It's focused on technology transfer, corporate partnerships, and PR. A bunch of different offices around campus that most people don't even know exist. Gary tells us that these universities are starting to transform into businesses, but not very good ones. They weren't that successful during the COVID-19 pandemic, and really, they've never been. I asked Gary about COVID-19 and how that's changed the story of academic capitalism. Plus, we surveyed the broader intellectual and political history of the term. Gary also tells me that things are changing now. Although it may be the reigning ideology, there's resistance, especially with the newfound labor power in the academy. Grad students and junior scholars are pushing back. They are precarious, they are struggling, but they are committed to creating a more just academy. Gary Rhodes, Academic Capitalism and COVID-19, after the break. If you like what we do, I want your support. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters and chip in today. We are very excited for this new year. Our first full real episode is back next week. It will be about the Canadian election. And beyond that, I have big ambitions. We're doing lots more stuff. We're making a YouTube version of our podcast with slick video. We're having a more active social media presence. And we're keeping up with our weekly content. But my biggest ambition of all is to make you a dedicated weekly Patreon-only episode. But we can't quite afford it yet. We don't have enough patrons. And also, we don't really have enough listeners for it to make sense. We've slowly grown. A few weeks ago, we actually hit 33rd in the Canadian charts for news commentary. That was cool. But we need to keep growing. So here's how you can help. Share our podcast with a friend. Like personally, just text it to them. Tell them why you like it. Tell them why they might like it too. Or you can rate or review it wherever you listen to it. And help us out on social. Every Friday, we tweet out a show link. Maybe give that a retweet. And follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, and follow our new YouTube channel. In fact, I have a special treat for you. Our first video. It's a video of me interviewing Dan Denver. You might have heard an audio cut of that interview a few weeks ago on the feed, but the full interview is on YouTube. So check it out and subscribe today. All of these things are going to help, and they mean a lot to our team. So please help spread the word. Plus, if you can, chip in. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Okay, back to the show and on to my interview with Gary Rhodes. Gary Rhodes is a professor at the College of Education at the University of Arizona. He co-wrote the book, Academic Capitalism and the New Economy, Markets, States, and Higher Education. I began our conversation by asking Gary about the narrative that universities would fundamentally change during the pandemic. This sort of refrain about the end of higher ed as we know it comes up every decade or so. I've been around for quite a few years. I would say that the remarkable thing about the pandemic from the standpoint of higher education is all sorts of unprecedented events, situations, scenarios, challenges, and yet the practices overwhelmingly of colleges and universities have been pretty much the same. Most institutions have followed what I would call an old normal 
an austerity discourse, very hunkered down and focused on the interests of the individual institution, not on the interests of the employees, of the students, of the surrounding communities. And you might think that during a pandemic, where in the U.S. over 600,000 people have died and several million internationally, you might think that universities and colleges would do something a little different. But as I said, remarkably, overwhelmingly, the pattern is to follow what I would call, what other people have called, an austerity discourse of the old normal and a very individualized, and that really fits with Uh, what Sheila Slaughter and I have called academic capitalism, approach to policy. And I would just, by way of contrast, one way of saying, well, how could they have behaved in different ways? I, I live in Tucson, and one of the local school districts, there are multiple school districts in Tucson, but one of them is called Sunnyside Unified School District. Very low income community overwhelmingly Latinx. What Sunnyside did early on in the pandemic, and then for some period of time throughout, was to use the relatively meager resources they have compared to, say, the University of Arizona, where I'm a professor. They use their resources to provide support for students and families, but also for the whole community. And two examples of that are they use their school buses to do two things. First, to distribute meals. A lot of the students in the Sunnyside Unified School District are on free and reduced lunch. And so they continued to distribute those meals, but they also distributed them more broadly than just the students. They distributed them to the community. They also use those buses as Wi-Fi hotspots because so many students in the community, as is the case in the U.S., there is a very harsh digital divide within urban communities and also with regard to rural communities. And in Arizona, that oftentimes means lower-income communities of color in urban areas and working-class white communities and Native American communities in rural areas as well as Latinx. And so this very low-resourced school district mustered what resources they had to serve the community. The University of Arizona did some things along those lines, but made no real concerted effort to address the broader needs of the community, let alone of their employees uh, and of the students that they serve. And then, of course, many of the students are also employees. So I think what happened during the pandemic was a continuation, as I said, Gordon, of the old normal of austerity. And then there's something that I've called disaster academic capitalism, combining the idea of disaster capitalism with a book several years ago called Disaster Capitalism with Sheila and I's notion of academic capitalism. And just the shorthand of that is under cover of COVID, a disaster institutions, managers within institutions, engage in practices sort of on steroids, which they were already engaged in prior to the so-called disaster. And that is precisely what's happened in higher education. What does that disaster 
academic capitalism? What did it look like at your institution, University of Arizona? Well, it's interesting because this pandemic and the response to it by the central administration was so extreme by way of disaster academic capitalism that it led first to the formation of a progressive coalition of faculty and staff and students, grad students primarily, to eventually forming a union, which if you'd have told me a year ago that there would be a a wall-to-wall union that included faculty, staff, and student employees, I'd have said not really much of a chance in hell that would happen. But that is precisely what happened. So what, what triggered that was a level of furloughs, which was the first and the worst among our peer institutions in the country. So that means other big public research universities. We were getting furloughed at 15 to 20% of our salary. There were substantial layoffs and non-renewals. In Canada, you may call them in some places contract faculty or lectures. In the U.S., contingent faculty, or in our place, we call them career track faculty. They're not on the tenure track. So you don't need to lay them off. You just don't renew them. So there were a lot of non-renewals of those levels, those types of faculty and of graduate employees, as well as a number of layoffs of both professional staff and like staff working in secretarial positions, custodial positions, groundskeeping positions. So a level of invoking a disaster which was projected as being multiple hundreds of millions of dollars, worst case scenario projections that justified cuts that were already underway and reallocations within the institution that were already underway. And so that was sort of the first major trigger. The second trigger was the attitude of the institution towards safe and healthy workplaces, which again, most there's some variation among universities and colleges. Some obviously went immediately to online. And then as the pandemic proceeded, they said, okay, in the fall 2020, we're going to continue online. At our institution, there was an effort to suggest that somehow we'd be welcoming people back face-to-face in the fall of 2020. And then when it was clear that that wasn't going to happen, there was a proposed several stage plan about stages at which students would come back. Faculty and staff and student employees were pretty outraged about those practices. And, and then the third thing was undertaking a deal with a for-profit higher education entity, Ashford University, which contracts with Zovio, which is a private provider of technology services, has an abysmal record with student completion and with predatory practices towards students. And what the University of Arizona said was, well, we want to get into the online market in a major way, very capitalistic notion. And so we're going to form an affiliation with this for-profit place, and they will become not-for-profit, and we'll call them University of Arizona Global Campus, 
even though there are no global students at the global campus. Those three things combined were all disaster responses. Privatization had been taking place for some time with various initiatives that often fail. The reallocation of resources and cuts in some programs as you're building other programs had been taking place for some time. But under cover of COVID, as I wrote at the time, these kinds of policies pretty much went on steroids in a sense, just a heightened pursuit of past practices. So to what extent are these kinds of changes, and specifically thinking about the furloughs and um, not bringing people back, I mean, to what extent are those justified by real revenue drops? I mean, presumably they lost money. And to what extent is that just like you you said, a, a projection that actually doesn't bear out, at least to the extent that they suggest? There's been several sort of postmortems on the pandemic and the effect of the pandemic. And some of those have been independent journalists doing analyses and saying, well, actually, the sky didn't fall. And most of higher education had not such a bad year. Now, there are sectors that have been more stressed, particularly regional public university systems, and particularly community colleges saw some enrollment declines, and some small non-selective private universities and colleges. But for the most part, higher education actually did pretty well. So there are those independent kind of assessments after the fact. You can find them in the New York Times, in the Washington Post. And what they found was, the, and here's another way in which the old normal persisted, the cuts that were made disproportionately fell on the least secure employees. And so that's also kind of a continuation, Gordon, of the old normal, right, that these practices privilege some groups over others, and those patterns of privilege and patterns of disparate adverse effect continue what you saw before the pandemic. Maybe the best example of that would be most places went remote and online. Discourse in public policy about the digital divide had had kind of fallen away over the past six, seven, eight years. But it became painfully clear during the pandemic that in the primary and secondary schools, as well as in higher education, the differential access and the lack of access to broadband internet was compromising the educational opportunities and experiences of students generally, but disproportionately lower-income students, disproportionately students from marginalized populations, both both urban and rural. I, I taught a class online last term, and, and everyone had broadband internet, but not all broadband internet is created equally. So there are definitely some people that were disadvantaged. They, you know, Their faces stuttered when they asked questions at times, things like that, that just made the experience really difficult. Gary, I'm curious, if the sky didn't fall, then why'd they make the cuts? There's an agenda that attaches to academic capitalism that drives decision-making increasingly and has done for 30 or 40 years now. 
about trying to move to areas of the market that you think, that managers think, are going to yield the most revenue. And, and here's the thing about this idea of academic capitalism. For the most part, when Sheila and I wrote this book, we kind of played with the title. What are we going to call it? And she had written a book a few years before with another colleague, Larry Leslie, which focused on resource allocation primarily, not on the organizational changes that go with academic capitalism. So they'd already used the word academic capitalism. So, okay, we'll, we'll talk about academic capitalism in a new economy. But what we joked about was most places are really bad at it. We played with the idea, well, we, should we call it bad academic capitalism? Well, no, we didn't want to say it's bad, you know, although we think it is. What we wanted to convey or what actually we were trying to convey is most places fail at these practices. And so, like most institutions fail at predicting where they're going to be able to move effectively to various markets. I'll give a couple of examples. And they're from the sectors that are the most stressed in U.S. higher education. Those are the regional public universities. So there's a university not all that far from the Canadian border in Ohio, which most of your listeners will never have heard of. It's the University of Akron. Akron is an old industrial rust belt city in the Midwest in Ohio. And the university has very limited success in drawing students from out of state. And that's important in the U.S. because obviously the out-of-state students pay much more tuition than the in-state students. And so I remember visiting the University of Akron about a decade, 12, 13 years ago when I was general secretary of the American Association of University Professors. And I was struck by the level of investment in non-essential, non-educational facilities. So they have what we call in the U.S. a student union, which is really a place where there's all these opportunities for getting food, for various other activities for students, and also recreation centers for students. Well, the University of Akron had invested $17 million in their student union, which included something which, I don't know if you've come across this phrase before, it's a lazy river which is part of a recreation facility where you can pretend like you're floating down a river that it's like a pool, but it's shaped like a river. I can tell you that overwhelmingly the Akron students are not interested in lazy rivers. They're working 30 and 40 hours a week. They commute to campus. They don't really live much on campus. But the university was trying to recruit out-of-state students with things like this lazy river investment in cool facilities. They were investing in high-priced residence halls. All of those investments tanked, failed. Akron is one of the universities where the biggest cuts were made to faculty as well as other staff during the pandemic. And a lot of the challenges they faced were that they tried to solve their enrollment problem by going after up upper-end, upper-middle-class students, which is a typical of an academic capitalist approach, instead of staying local, instead of being comfortable in your skin and 
meeting the needs of the community, you think you're going to be able to compete for those out-of-state students who will pay more money, and then you'll get more money into the institution. So you make all these investments, the investments don't pay off, and so you end up raising your tuition more and more and more, which prices those working class students who are basically the bread and butter of your institution out of the market. And that's what's happened at Akron. It's happened at a, a range of other regionals as well, that they, in trying to move to upper end markets to get more money, which is part of the logic of accumulation of academic capitalism, they actually incur more debt and fail to meet their objectives. In the book, you contrast academic capitalism as a model versus you know, something that's more like a public good or a, lib- a liberal learning regime, I think is a phrase I, I read in your book. If we're right here that you know academic capitalism is sort of a new ideology, give me a little bit of its intellectual history. Like who exactly made the case for it and how did they make the case over those other models? Yeah, at this point, it's not new, it's old. It's 40 plus years old. And in fact, I would argue that at this point, we should be able to assess that as a way of structuring higher education institutions, it's an utter and complete failure. We have massive student debt. We have fundamental and growing inequities in people's access to higher education. We have, as is often the case with heightened capitalism, deteriorating, dramatically deteriorating working conditions for staff and for faculty. And so, and we have declining public trust in the institution. (laughs) So on any measure, you'd say, wow, this regime has been in place for 40 years. It's old and it's failed. Where it came from, it really originated, and I was part of the, the piece that tracked the origins of three different policy regimes in the U.S., one of them in student financial aid. And so in the 70s, there was a real shift towards essentially funding the students more than funding the institutions. And the premise there is a very market-based capitalistic notion that the consumers and the consumer market can best decide And they will pick the good institutions and they will punish the bad institutions by not going to them. In the 70s, there was a push, a pretty concerted push, to move to that market-based notion of how should the federal government support higher education. So they chose to support it through student aid. And at the time, most of that student aid was grants. And then some proportion of it was loans. In the interim 40 years, the balance between grants and loans is completely reversed. So now it's overwhelmingly loans and relatively minor amount is grants. That's why we have increased student debt. Are we talking essentially here about the kind of thing that mostly happens between closed doors where a bunch of policy wonks get together the public has no say and little knowledge of it until over the years they realize just how much things have changed like a sort of frog in gradually boiling water. 
or at the time, like in the I'm just curious about like why the shift. Was this something that was consciously sold politically, intellectually, to a wider public as as an appropriate and better system? Absolutely, both. It was sold as a better system. It was a concerted effort by a variety of groups nationally, and at the time, and over time. And you can see this playing out even today in debates about should there be college for all, should there be free public ed- higher education in the U.S. The pushback is not just from small groups of people behind closed doors. The pushback is a political pushback from particular parties and particular segments of society that do not think we should be investing in public institutions. So in the U.S., obviously, that's the Republican Party, which for 40 years has been disinvesting in public anything. And then when there are problems in whatever public entity we're talking about, whether it's public schools or public services or now public higher education, they say, well, it's not working. Let's cut it. And we'll basically turn to the private sector to solve those problems. So there is quite a clear articulation of that perspective, government bad, market good. That underlay this decision in the 70s. Then over time, Gordon, what happens is at the state level, this happens too. The state says, well, state of California, the state of Arizona, the state of Massachusetts, wherever, says, well, okay, so the federal government is providing some financial aid. We need to provide financial aid for students too, so that students in the state of wherever can afford Uh, public higher education. Well, again, at the state level, there's this reluctance, and it's party connected, but not party exclusive. That was part of the point of the book, that there was actually a consensus over time that this was the best way to organize higher education was through markets. That sort of combination of influences and beliefs and perspectives played out at the state level as well. So the states, obviously with variations, I happen to be in a state that is at the bottom of the barrel in terms of funding higher education per student and in terms of providing financial aid for students at at the state level. I'm in a state where students of color are now the majority population in public schools. And you have to ask yourself, is the unwillingness of a particular political party, the Republican Party, the unwillingness to invest in public schools related at all to who goes to those schools? And I think to not ask that question and consider it seriously is to miss, you know, you must be sitting in Canada wondering what in the world is going on in this behemoth country to the south and we, we're still fighting the Civil War. Mm. At the same time, though, that that uh, 40-year span, I mean, you alluded to it earlier, this was a, a bipartisan consensus. I mean, ultimately, the kind of third-way Democrats accepted it. Obama did some good things around consumer protection, but not a radical change of academic capitalism, from my understanding. So tell me a bit more about with the Democrats, how they're complicit in this, and what, if anything, have they done that's actually, that, that is uh, positive? 
it, it's pretty. E- it's easier at the federal level to see how this plays out in terms of the complicity. At the state level, it's, it's a different kind of clear picture. So at the federal level, take the Obama years and now take Biden and contrast that with the preceding Bush years to Obama and uh, the preceding Trump years. So in some ways, continuity, as you just said, both for Obama and for Biden, higher education is a path to jobs. And so I remember, I was in D.C. actually, and with the AUP, American Association of University Professors, the the year that Obama was inaugurated, I can remember the excitement of the various institutional associations in the city. Oh my goodness, finally, after eight years, we now are going to have access to the White House. This is really great. Well, early on, Obama emphasized community college education. And the four-year institutions, were their associations were pretty perturbed about that. Like, Why all this investment in community colleges? Well, so two things happened by way of complicity. One, Obama was, in a sense, forced to cut back on that substantial investment in community colleges because he had a very weak coalition, which was unwilling to pass a major reinvestment package after the recession. The second thing, though, that happened was that the programs under that investment in community colleges were shifted from the Department of Education to Department of Labor because they were basically workforce preparation programs. Again, kind of an accommodation to the idea, well, we got to get people back to work. We're in this tremendous recession. But it's a way of seeing post-secondary education purely as workforce preparation and not recognizing that when you emphasize that, you are systematically shortchanging working class people who disproportionately go to community colleges. They're short cycled and they don't get the opportunity to move into a variety of professions. So in that regard, the Democratic Party from 2009 to to 17 uh, through 16 failed to take advantage of an opportunity to really reverse substantially the thinking and, and the notion of what public higher education is. Now, having said that, under the Obama administration, the Pell Grant program, which is a major federal support for lower-income students in financial aid, substantially increased. And in a pretty stunning reversal to academic capitalism, there was a very successful assault on the for-profit proprietary higher education sector. And at the same time, a getting of the banks out of the financial aid game and having the government step in. Those were huge changes. But the overall view of how we fund higher education, the party was not able to sustain a reinvestment at the level that would have been necessary to reverse past policies program. Biden is facing the same challenge now, right? So he has more successfully advanced early on a tax relief package. He's now promoting a college for all package, but it's really two-year college for all. 
at plus uh, two years pre-school. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's that the progressives in the party who want to change the idea of college being for free, make it for free, and make it four-year college for free, are probably not going to have, almost certainly not going to have the votes, the strengths to promote that program. And so I, I don't want to paint it out that nothing has changed because there's some big, big changes. Absolutely. But the democratic vision that you lay out there is still sort of premised on um, job training, preparing oneself for the economy and emphasizing meritocracy and economic uplift, which, I mean, it, maybe this is coming from someone who uh, who's a little privileged in that regard. But one of the things that sort of makes me a little uh, despondent in these conversations is that the worth of the academy by the people who, the only people who actually fund it, has to be sold in that way and not in the sort of more virtuous public good, democratic participation, creativity, individual uplift, and community uplift that that sort of is outside of the market, which is what makes university so special. It's a, it's a space to a certain extent, less and less so now, that is carved out from the market. And so I, I worry about sort of, even if we get more funds this way, it's still transforming the university into something that, at least from my perspective, is it's not really what it's for. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's the continuity. The continuity is how is this space justified? And as you're saying, Gordon, it's all the more remarkable, given what the U.S. experienced on January 6th with the insurrection, given the threat to democracy, given the assault on voting rights, and the assault on students' voting rights is a systematic part of that in, in virtually every state. It is quite remarkable that there is not a rising progressive counterattack and countervision from the National Party on what the purpose of higher education is. Now, I, I will say I do a lot of work on academic labor, and, and actually labor groups are much more consistently progressive in that regard as to why we have higher education, why, you know, what the purposes of higher education is, how employees in higher education as much or more than anywhere else should have working conditions that demonstrate respect for the worker, for respect for their work, and respect for the public purposes of the academy. So I would say that what you see across the nation, this, this really came through in the pandemic as well, is capitalism is about a struggle between labor and management. Labor mobilized in a way, has mobilized in the past 10 years and including in the past year in a way that's really quite impressive given the context. And at the center of that it are the kinds of ideas that you're that you're speaking to, Gordon. And so there's there's a Scholars for the New Deal coalition. There was a labor summit about a week and a half ago that uh, my union was a part of that's centered at uh, Rutgers University. 
if you're looking for those sort of progressive messages, you're more likely to find them within labor groups within higher education. In the free public community college movement, those groups have been really important. What does that look like? You mentioned at the top at your institution, seeing those sort of wall-to-wall unions. I'm curious about sort of the composition of these labor groups that you're mentioning and how they're mobilizing there, who, who they're mobilizing with. So it's pretty interesting because I've been tracking this for 30 years. A decade ago, there was a similar kind of national coalition of labor groups. They were mostly faculty and staff, but mostly faculty. And they were centered in places that have most consistently been active at a national level in previous decades. I'm part of this one now. The difference in this one now is this wall-to-wall dimension, which means involvement of all employees and employee groups on college campuses. So not just faculty, not just faculty and contingent faculty, but faculty, staff, and not just professional staff, but also custodial, secretarial, groundskeeping staff and the like, and student workers. The coalition now is much more consciously, the guy who's leading it is Todd Wolfson at Rutgers University. And he's part of the faculty union, but he's been quite conscious in saying we need staff unions, we need grad employee unions, we need unions that are representing all sorts of workers, and we need to form coalitions with labor groups outside of the academy. And I think over the past decade, that is really the work that labor has been doing, that academic labor has been doing. That that kind of combination of on-campus employee groups, but also working in concert with labor groups in the state uh, is where the action is. And you see real solidarity among these groups coming out in the, in the pandemic in some pretty interesting and remarkable ways. That's where I think the hope for articulating an alternative vision lies. It's inspiring to hear that solidarity and with full-time faculty dwindling it's also just a necessity i mean how are you going to <laughs> how are you going to affect change without without that kind of uh, broad solidarity hopefully coming back to in person classes in september schools have done i guess decent at shifting to online learning i mean except for for the students that don't have good enough internet but long story short My question is really, are we going to see any kind of um, lasting change and acceleration of these capitalistic dynamics towards cutting faculty and increasing distance learning in September? Or are we just going to sort of like forget this ever happened and go back to, to the old normal? I think that's exactly the question. And that is why I think it's so important from the management perspective There is no question that going back to normal is a continuation of the old normal, of the austerity discourse, of the disparity, of increased student debt. And so if management has its way, yes, we will continue on the old normal. Information technology will be used in ways that don't serve students, don't particularly serve faculty or staff who are providing those services. But are aimed to serve and generate revenue for the institution. That is exactly what is happening. (laughs) 
that is that Ashford deal that I was telling you about at the University of Arizona. And you can see that on particular issues. You can see it in the case of Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement. Graduate employees are consistently negotiating provisions that are much stronger with regard to sexual harassment and discrimination. You can see it in terms of faculty and staff groups pushing for more investment in the support and education of students and reduce student debt. So just about every academic labor group in the country is pushing hard for reduced student debt and for reduced disproportionate investment in management. I'm not going to predict because it's to be negotiated. And the biggest secret is negotiation can work, just like democracy. <laughs> if you were to ask me, well, what's going to happen with the U.S. democracy? I don't know. It's up for grabs. And if it's going to succeed and survive in a healthy way, it's going to take people organizing and fighting and negotiating. And I would say the same thing with the academy. And so it's to be negotiated. That was Professor Gary Rhodes. He's at the College of Education at the University of Arizona. He co-wrote the book, Academic Capitalism and the New Economy, Markets, States, and Higher Education. His co-author was Professor Sheila Slaughter. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. We were produced by Ren Bangert. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our research assistants were Franklin Bartol and David Mosscrop. Dr. Mark Spooner at the University of Regina was our scholarly advisor. And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. As always, our theme song and outro is by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and our marketing is by Ian Souden. I'm curious to know what you think. I'm curious to know what you want us to make this season. If you want to send us some thoughts, please do so. Our address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. Also check out our new Instagram and YouTube channels and the full video interview with Dan Denver. I will link all that in the show notes. We are backed by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash dartsandletters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by academic research grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of the public intellectual. This is also part of a wider project looking at neoliberal educational reforms. Professor Mark Spooner is the academic lead on that project, and Franklin Bartol is the lead research assistant. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.